we're in a stuff that's unique to Luke right now. The stuff that we're reading from Luke is found nowhere else. Yeah, because it's primarily from the perspective of Mary? Well, that's the hypothesis. That is the hypothesis. The sourcing of Matthew's gospel seems to be from the Jewish perspective of a male relative of Jesus. In other words, some scholars tend to think that Matthew's unique sources come from James, the brother of the Lord, who was the head of the church in Jerusalem up until his uh, execution during the Roman uh, siege of the city in the late 60s AD. If that's true, then what we have in Matthew is a heavily Jewish sourced body of oral traditions about the birth of Jesus and other events relative to that. And that is kind of what it looks like. Luke, on the other hand, takes a completely different perspective. It goes to the woman's perspective. As we've noticed in Luke chapter 1, the story is told, yes, we have Zechariah telling a story in chapter 1 about how we, he, is, you know, he is encountered by the angel in the temple, but he's no hero. He gets in trouble. He gets struck dumb. He can't speak. He's now mute. Elizabeth conceives and she bears this child. She is the hero of the story. Likewise, the, the Annunciation occurs unto Mary that she's going to have a child. In Matthew, the Annunciation occurs to, to Joseph, not to Mary. Again, we have Mary is the focus. The woman is the hero. She goes down. She visits Elizabeth. They have this wonderful conversation between the two of them. Elizabeth affirms Mary, and Mary sings the beautiful song, the Magnificant, as we call it, fashioning it after the song of Hannah found in the Old Testament. Then we have the birth of, of, of John the Baptist, with Zechariah having this beautiful song also fashioned from other material, the Benedictus fashioned from other material, particularly from the Psalms. But it's a story that's more along the lines of what the women would tell. So the hypothesis grew over time that what we have in Matthew is Joseph's side of the story through his son James, the brother of the Lord, who was the head of the church in Jerusalem, up to just a decade or so before the gospel was written. And in Luke, what we have is the, is the result of Luke's research and interviews, especially of either Mary or Mary's circle. People who knew her, knew of her, knew her stories, or possibly even her. And his interview uh, with those types of, that kind of information, those stories, those events that come from that stream of thought from the Marian stream of thought, then make up the birth narrative section of Luke's gospel. And they are two completely different stories with just a couple of commonalities. One, an angel makes an announcement. That's interesting. That's in both, but it's two different people. And the place of birth is both, in both places, both gospels, it's Bethlehem. Apart from that, oh, and a boy is born. <laughs> Apart from that, well, you could even say one other thing. He is recognized as who and what he is. 
by witnesses. But the identity of those witnesses is very different between the two. All right. Now, apart, come on in. Apart from that, all of the details are different. And many of the major events are different. There's room at the table. I don't think there really is any way to question the priority of Mark yeah. as the source for Matthew and Luke and the existence of Q, the saying source, and the fact that both Matthew and Luke got their materials from two completely different sources, which explains their differences. And those sources reflect different cultural settings, different expectations in those cultural settings, different sources within those settings. Um, and that's why they look and sound and feel the way they do. As we read through Luke, it's important to recognize those differences. And as we will encounter today, the difficulty in not harmonizing Luke with Matthew. We're going to want to do it. Mm -hmm. Don't do it. Okay, I hand it out, and I'll give you a copy when we're done. I handed out a paper. It's a set of notes that I had taken on the arguments in favor of the traditional identification of the authors of the Synoptic Gospels. This is back in, from a, paper, a lecture I did in 09. And it deals, and I'll, I'll send out a copy when I'm finished. Um, it deals with the question of how do we trust our sources and why do I hold the position that I hold that we really ought to trust Bishop Papias more than we do. And I kind of make my argument in a, in a structured form. There's some repetition in here, but that was hard to avoid. I deal with the relative uh, veracity of Papias's witness, the apostolic obscurity argument for each of them, the continued problem of obscurity, the, com the community need versus historic memory argument. Uh, these are all explained in here as I go through. And so it's for you if you want to read it. You're welcome to read it. It kind of explains much of what I... Um, have said in terms of the authorship, it, it, it takes the documentary hypothesis that I just presented as being valid, but is willing to give Papias, who was a bishop in Hierapolis in the second century, was trained and educated his, by his own claim by John the Disciple in the last half of the first century. Um, it, it takes him a little more seriously than scholarship is currently willing to do. And um, while I, I would agree with scholarship that what he says about Matthew doesn't jive, I think, it all, I think it does jive with Q. And what he says about Mark is absolutely spot on, and what he says about Luke is also pretty strong to support. So I, I tend to think that we really ought to pay more attention to what Papias says. I run contrary to most current scholarship on the subject on that issue. I don't make an apology for that other than, well, I kind of do because that's what this paper is. But um, <laughs> I, uh, the, the simple point is, is that I think that um, uh, we ought to be paying more attention to that historic source. He was a heck of a lot closer to it than people like Burke Mack over at, uh, at Claremont School of Theology in California is <laughs> in terms of history. So um, in terms of like the authorship of Mark or the authorship of Luke. So I, I, I think it... That's what I've done here. And in doing this, I also follow some, of, some leads from both Dutch and German scholars of the last de 10 years of the 20th and now uh, into the 21st century 
who have uh, resurrected Papias as an important source and analyzed, as we've discovered more of his writings, analyzed what he said about, uh, about these, the authors of the Gospels. All right? And so this is my argument. Anyway, that's, that's for you all here. Now, we are in chapter 2 of Luke. We are in chapter 2 of the Gospel of Luke. In those days, interesting, we just finished this bit about John the Baptist and his birth, incarnation and birth. Jesus' incarnation, and you could say gestation period, because part of it occurs during the material we were reading. But now we skip several months. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. Some render that as taxed. Uh, some render that as accounted for. Lots of ways to translate that term. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, right there, there are a couple of points that ought to be made. Augustus reigned from 27 BC to 14 AD. So he had a, a rather extensive reign. And it talks, it says the whole world. Well, that really means the empire, which to them was the, ol the only part of the world that mattered, was the empire and in the regions that it controlled. Quirinius was a military governor, of, um, a military legate, a commissioner of Augustus. Uh, really, he was legate and commissioner of Augustus, of, of Augustus, and he carried out a war against a rebellious tribe in Syria at the time. So he was the military governor of Syria. There was a, a civil administrator, uh, Governor Varus, who also was in charge at this time. But Quirinius was probably the more important of the two. He was also the one who would have had military authority over the garrison in Jerusalem and the garrison at Caesarea on the coast, which is where the Romans' center of power was located at the time in the occupation of Israel, of Judea and Galilee. The, um, uh, so he would have been the one that they would have been interested in. <coughs> Um, he was, there was also this war going on against this rebellion in Syria at the time. And some scholars, Raymond Brown being one of them, have speculated that this taxation or this accounting was actually done in order to fund the Roman military um, war, uh, activities against this rebellion in Syria. Lots of debate, lots of questionings about this. There's been a lot of questioning as to whether or not there was anything even like this at all. Uh, most of the uh, censuses and, and taxation accountings that occurred at the time were done only of Roman citizens and or of the wealthy of a region, the people who actually had money and resources. Uh, why they would want to be doing an accounting of all of Judea is another question, with the possible exception that its actual purpose was not so much to tax as it was to draft. They were doing an account, and it would be why they would be interested in 
men of their families in their relationships with their families because uh, if their intent was the need, possible need to raise additional armies, and the Romans raised armies far beyond Italy and Greece, they, they raised armies and soldiers from anywhere that they could by a conscription, it's possible that that's, this is actually what it was, was a, a conscription or a draft measure, as well as a taxation process. Uh, we don't know. The records of the event are gone. We do know of several taxation events, several <laughs> census events that occurred at this time. This could have been part of one of them. If it is, that's one of the ones it could have been, the actual conscription process to carry out that battle in Syria. We don't know. We simply don't know. It would be a little strange if it was just a taxation event for someone to have to go back to their ancestral home to do it. All right. So that raises a lot of questions. Nevertheless, one of the things this does is it places the time of this event. And it places it in a way that a Gentile is going to understand. Think about it. Over in Matthew's Gospel, the birth of Jesus is oriented around the life of King Herod, who's going to be important to Jews. In the Gospel of Luke, the birth of Jesus is oriented around the reign of the Roman Emperor which is going to be of interest to Gentiles. The target audience of Matthew is Jews or Jewish Christians. The target audience of the Gospel of Luke is Gentile Christians. So that makes perfect sense. They're going to be more interested in setting these things based upon the Gentile method of time reckoning. By the way, that's going to happen repeatedly in the Gospel of Luke, not just with dates, but also with how do you tell the time of the day, which becomes important when you're dealing with things like the death of Jesus. That'll be much later. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. And I'm sure she made this trip and wondered, why the heck didn't I stay down here with Elizabeth and he could have come down and picked me up on the way, as I said last time. I mean, that would have made more sense. Why does she have to go all the way back up to Nazareth? Here she is, she's pregnant. They turn around just a few months later and have to make the trip all over again, all the way back down, past Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem. Ian Karim, where Zechariah and Elizabeth lived, is to the west of Jerusalem, kind of parallel with it. So he could have swung through there and picked her up, but no. Hmm. And that, the first session asked the question, is it possible that, the, that uh, the word that they needed to be taxed came while she was on her way back up? I'm sure, but it's not as if they had cell phones. They could call and say, hey, honey, stay down there. I'm going to come pick you up. No, no, they didn't do that. Now, they could have sent a message by light signal, but that was under the control of the Romans. So... Post, they did have a mail system, but that would have take, taken a, just as long as it would have taken her for to, go, to get home. So, I mean, there really were no other options. Um, still, you kind of feel sorry for her. Pregnant, on a, on, a, on, a, on a donkey, and walking roughly the distance from Dallas to Houston, and it's mountainous. No, thank you. <laughs> And, and there are bandits and robbers, so you have to go in a, in, a, in, a, in a caravan group for safety reasons. So you have to keep up the pace. Ugh. 
He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. A story we all know. Or do we? We usually picture this event as taking place. They get into town. It's late at night. Because of the taxation, the city is packed with people. There's no room at the Hilton, the Radisson, or the Motel 6. They're in trouble. They don't have any place to stay. They go knock on the door. Sorry, you can't stay here. Sorry, you can't stay here. We have no room. We have no room. No vacancies. They come to the last one. Oh, please, huh? My wife's getting ready to have a baby. Oh, please. Oh. Well, you can stay in the stable out behind you know, the motel. And, and so they go back to the garage, and they stay there. And then she, immediately she has the child. No. That's how it's depicted in children's presentations frequently. That's how it's depicted in the artwork and in some movies, but that's not what it says. Read it for what it says. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged, not married, engaged, and who was expecting a child. And notice we have a sudden jump. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. We don't know when this happened. We don't know if it happened when they were just getting into town or they'd been there for three weeks. It doesn't say. It simply says, while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloths, swaddling clothes, as some translations render it, and laid him in a manger. What's a manger? It's what you feed the cows for. It's, it's a feeding trough. Now, we normally depict mangers as being made out of wood. It's in the shape of a V. It has, a, it has sides. It's in the shape of a V. It has sides. And it has two, legs, uh, two sets of legs on either side so that it stands up, you know, so you can put the baby Jesus in it. That, that's what we see in all of our nativity scenes. That's what you've got. But that's not what it was. It was made out of stone. And it had a carved trough on top to hold the, the grain, the meal, the food. So it's not something she'd carry around. And where was this? Well, it doesn't actually say that they were in any kind of stable or barn, does it? No. It just says that they laid the baby Jesus in a manger because there was no room in the inn. Now, I speculated in my Christmas Eve sermon that they were actually went to a place that they knew about. It wasn't that they went searching out for a motel and couldn't find one, therefore I had to stay in the garage. No. They went to something that was probably run by their family. They've gone to their home. Joseph has gone home and there's an inn that his family runs, a multi-level home, just like you find in Palestine today. And then the bottom level of a multi-level home is where you keep your animals. Why? Because their heat rises and warms the floors above. And it's a cave. It's, it's an above, a below ground cave, either man-made or, or natural. But it's not cold either because it's more like a basement. It's a basement, exactly. So, so we depict it as, you know, they're out there shivering in the wooden stall. No. There might have been wooden stalls inside the cave, but, but they're not exposed out in the air. They're in a cave, half underground or completely underground. 
The baby is in a feeding trough, yes. And it's probably the warmest part of the house because you've got the animals around. And it's not, and especially not unusual for a pregnant woman who's giving birth to be placed in the warmest place in the house, which would have been that basement where all the animals were, where the probably transient animals, we're talking the donkeys of those who travel and are staying there, possibly the cows that are used to provide, or, or the goats that are used to provide the milk, and chickens for the eggs and that kind of stuff. I mean, we're talking, um, we're, we're talking a, a fairly extensive cave network. Now, if it happens to be the same cave network that we find in Bethlehem today, it's quite extensive. There's the traditional site, but it could have been any number of these caves that are now under the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. Um, the, but this is it. This is the description. They go there, they are there, and then she gives birth. And they lay the baby in a feeding trough. In the region, are there questions? In that region there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah of the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, on earth peace among those whom he favors. Now, that scene, we, we've all seen that. We've, uh, when I was a kid, I had to play a shepherd. I mean, that's just that's what you, it's, it's what you do. It's an important part of the nativity story, all right? Pretty straightforward, pretty clear. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and part pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And that's it. No wise men. No animals talking at night. No drummer boy. No drummer boy. No How drummer boy. This movie's getting harder to make. Yes, it is. It's harder to make. What are we going to no, pick? No Herod the Great scheming. No Esther the long-eared donkey. No Esther the long-eared donkey. No Herod scheming. No murder of the children. No escape into Egypt. All of that stuff that's found in Matthew is not here. The, 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 no talking donkey, no drummer boy in Matthew either, but Herod the Great... The wise men, the star, the murder of the innocents, the escape into Egypt, all of that is unique to Matthew. It is not found in Luke. In Luke, they get there, she gives birth, 
lays him in a feeding trough. Shepherds get the message. They come. They recognize him. They, they, tell, they tell Mary and Joseph what the angels said. They then leave glorifying God. And Mary considers and treasures these things in her heart. That's it. In our iconography, in our artistry, in our movies, in our plays and pageants, we put them together. But they were not known together. Not when they were first written. Yes. You, you mentioned last time, I think, the time frame of yes. Matthew and Luke, but uh -huh. the writings, but mm -hmm. would you mention those again, how far apart they were? Matthew and Luke were about? both writing sometime uh, after Mark, therefore sometime after 70. Probably Luke, Matthew and Luke were writing between 75 and 90. Uh, many people say Matthew wrote and then Luke wrote, but they wrote independently of each other. Neither knew each other, neither author knew each other. They didn't have what the other wrote in front of them. And while traditionally scholars will put Matthew first and then Luke, it could have been the other way around. So about 80 AD, a good round date would be 75 to 85 AD, would be a good range for the writing of Matthew and Luke. But couldn't the possibilities of the differences be too, who they were directed towards? Who they were directed to? Jewish crowd versus well. a Gentile crowd. Mm -hmm. You know, what is of interest of the Jews is what would happen from from Herod the Great. But I mean, and and all of those things tended to happen, and they were you know. Mm -hmm. But Gentiles would not be so happy to hear all this horrible stuff happening all combined with this glorious story? Well, I don't know. Gentiles are pretty, it could be pretty vicious too, but but I see what you're suggesting. About a, a savior story. Yes. They're looking for all the goodness and none of the badness compared to Jews okay. who were used to it being all mixed together. That's a possibility. What you're saying essentially is, is that the target audience and the sourcing is what results in the differences in the story. Right. I think that's absolutely correct. It's the sourcing and the target audience that results in the kinds of birth narratives that we've got. Now, while you could possibly find ways to harmonize elements of these, I don't see how you get around the next part. <laughs> well, door open, it. door shut! <laughs> After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, remember this is being written by a Gentile to Gentile Christians. Right. Now he's quoting purification, circumcision, and now purification according to the law of Moses. Interesting. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now, Matthew, a Jewish author writing to a Jewish Christian, a Jewish Christian author writing to a Jewish Christian crowd, don't you think they would consider this rather important had they known it and included it? Yeah. But they don't include it. Oh, man. This is but it goes to an audience that's a Gentile Christian audience. They're not used to this kind of stuff. They don't do this kind of thing. They're barely aware that the law exists, much less knowing it intimately. They're having to be told it. 
Hmm. Maybe that's the point. Possibly. Let's keep going. There's more. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. This is a beautiful song. It's been crafted by using elements from Isaiah. Isaiah uh, chapter 52, Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 49. Elements from Isaiah have been stitched together. Uh, images from Isaiah have been stitched together to, to create, to fashion this beautiful song. It's usually called the Song of Simeon. It is usually sung in evening prayers. When I was in the monastery, we would sing it at the end of Compline, which is the last prayers before you go to bed. We would sing this beautiful song every single night. It formed our character and our soul. It's a song of release and expectation and joy. Now, it's placed into the lips of Simeon. Simeon is um, a fairly obscure person, at least we think he is, uh, from our perspective today. Going back to, let us say, 80 AD, a lot closer to these events, we're still talking 80 years later, was he real? Was he historical? Uh, probably yes. Did he sing this song? We don't know, but it seems like it's been written, crafted, devised by Luke, piecing together elements from multiple places. However, it does seem as at least possible that what we have here is a memory of them taking the baby Jesus to for the purification rites in the temple and a very famous holy man, Simeon. It, it, it's rather abrupt. He just takes the child. I mean, if I were a mom, hey, wait a minute, what are you doing to my baby? And then he sings this beautiful song. It seems rather strange. It's something that, it's an event that you might remember and tell 30, 40, 50, 60 years later. That baby was picked up by holy Simeon who was known by everybody in Jerusalem at that time, long dead now, and this was said about him. And look what's said about him. This is something that it's cast within a Jewish framework. It's cast within Jewish theology and expectation, but it's also quite a bit different. You're dismissing your servant in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, not just the Jews, for all the world to see. Some translations render that. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. The Messiah is, is not for the Gentiles in Jewish thought. The Messiah, the anointed one of God, is for the Jewish people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory to 
and for glory to your people Israel. Yes, the Israelites are part of this. Yes, the Jewish people are part of this recognition and, and receive position in this event. But this is a proclamation for the world in the lips of this Simeon. How appropriate for something that is written by a Gentile Christian to a Gentile Christian audience to hear that this Jesus and, and, uh, is someone who is immediately recognized by this powerful, well-known, in that time he actually was, well-known, now long dead, prophet who takes this child newborn, having not heard any of the stuff that the angels have done, having not heard anything that the shepherds did, having not heard any of that, he'd simply prayed that he would see the Messiah. They bring the baby in to do the normal stuff you're supposed to do, and he whips this child out of the mother's arms, and he says, oh, ha, ha, my eyes have seen your salvation, whom you have prepared for all the world to see, a light to enlighten the nations and the glory of your people Israel. Not done, but that's a powerful event. And the child's, and no, now notice the echo here of how this was retained. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Well, why would you be amazed? You had the affirmation just a few day, a week and a half ago uh, from the shepherds. Uh, uh, Mary, don't you remember that, that the angel came and spoke to you nine months ago and told you that you would conceive and bear a child and you shall name him Jesus? And he shall be the, the, the harbinger of the Most High, the, 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 the Messiah. And, and then you went and you saw your, your, your Aunt Elizabeth and, and, and the baby in her womb leapt. Because, and she said that you are, the, you are the mother of the Lord. Don't you remember all these things? Why should this be a surprise to you? Interesting. Huh. And the, father, the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. Just an observation of what you just said. Yes. Uh, it says amazed. didn't say surprised. Not surprised. Amazed. Okay. Now amazed would be like the little story you and I book we read is false. But, you know, amazed may mean like, knowing the name of the person these people knew mm -hmm. but they were surprised that they knew or amazed that they'd already knew that story yeah that's a possibility right there my bible says marveled marveled wondered yeah we're impressed by touched by you know who it is i didn't even have to tell you yeah that's and you are such an important person simeon and you know our little baby and notice this he then goes and tells them this statement. This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel. Wow. What does it mean back up here in 25 in my Bible? It says, Simeon, behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was just in doubt, waiting for the consolation of Israel. What is that? Mm -hmm. For, for Israel to receive its reward, for Israel to receive its position. Oh, he's waiting on the prophet. He's waiting on the, on the, on the consummation, yeah. the consolation of Israel and the consummation of God's will for it. The coming of the, the coming of the Messiah. That's what it says in verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So he was waiting on this event. 
He was he like, said, I'm old and I'd like to die, but I'm, I'm ready. ready. <laughs> says, I need to see this first. He says he just and devout, and then it says he blessed the child. Yeah, he blessed the Did child. Did he have some place in the church, possibly? Well, in the in the Hebrew people, and he was a highly respected prophet in 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 the Jewish community, and would have been very well known. Which is one of the reasons why they may have been amazed by this event. That he that's what we were saying. Because they, they brought him in. They brought Jesus in, not to see him, but to do what was normal, to, to do the rites of purification, and bango, this happens. Wow. And, and notice this last statement, verse 35, so that, excuse me, uh, the child, let me go back to 34 part B. This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be opposed. Good news and not so good news. And now really no good news. Bad news. So that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Oh, I think he, he, he's being destined for the rising and falling of many in, in Israel. He, he is... He is going to change everything here. Unfortunately, it's also going to result in a sword piercing your own heart too. <whistles> sort of a foreshadowing of what was getting ready to happen. No wonder they remembered at least the basics of the event. What scholar t scholars tend to think is that the event occurred it echoed in Mary's mind. She told her friends about it later, repeated it many times after his death and resurrection. After what he says, they then saw. And then Luke, having heard that there was this encounter, took from Isaiah and fashioned this beautiful song, which is sort of illustrates what he then says in 33, 34, and 35. Essentially, what he says in actually 34 and 35 is what he says to them. The song is kind of Luke's way of articulating and illustrating it. This is not just for the people of Israel. This applies to everyone, Gentile as well as Jew. Gentile as well as Jew. Now, verse 33. Read your verse 33. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of Fine. Him. And Joseph and his mother marveled. You, you're reading an authorized King James, correct? Yes. Yes, that's it. That's it. Okay. That's, it's either that or it's the old, the old revised version. What is the revised? You have a revised standard. Yeah. What does it say? It's very different. And his father and his mother marveled. And his father and his mother. And the Oxford says father and mother. Father and mother. Okay, I'm handing out a handout. Take one and pass it around. Right here. Last time, or time before last, we talked about the transmission of the New Testament from um, generation to generation, copy to copy to copy, and that they change and get adjusted slightly by variants creeping into it. Here is an example of a variant. This is just a good example of one. In fact, it's a really important one. In Matthew's, in, in the King James, well, Let's just start with my out handout here. How a variant gets drafted into the New Testament text. 
And I give the Nestle Elan 27th edition of Luke chapter 2, verse 33 in Greek. And then translations. I give the NRSV, the NAS, the ESV, the New Jerusalem Bible, the NIV, and the Vulgate. So I give English and one Latin, showing how the more modern translations render that passage. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. And his father and mother were amazed at these things. And his father and his mother marveled. And the child's father and mother were wondering. And the child's father and mother marveled. Okay, we see the child's father and mother is the common <coughs> rendering in the new or more modern translations. Translating the Greek rendering, kai ein ha pater autu kai e mater. And the father and the mother of the child. So that reading is supported by the earliest and best preserved manuscripts, including Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, D.W., Family Ones, Family 700, um, a manuscript called uh, 1241, uh, and, and both Sinaiticus and Vaticanus date to the mid-fourth century. Some old Latin and Vulgate, Rent, Gregorian, uh, Georgian, excuse me, Georgian, some Syriac copies, and Church Fathers, Origen, Jerome, and Augustine all quote it that way. All right? That's why the more modern translations, the RSV, the NRSV, the NASB, the ESV, the New Jerusalem Bible, the NIV, they all render it that way. The the child's father and mother, essentially. The traditional translation reads, <clears throat> uh, and this is the majority text of the Greek New Testament, kai ein Yosef kai e mater. And Joseph and the mother. All right? And that's found in the King James. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And it's supported by a majority of the manuscript witnesses, and then I list some of them there. Okay? This is an example of how a manuscript can change over time. One of the variants of this verse is found in manuscripts. Alexandrinus, Pi, Psi, and many other manuscripts reads, Kai ein Ha Yosef, Kai e Mater, and the Joseph and the mother of him. How did this variant get into the text? Your hint is that the one of the earliest examples of this variant occurring, it comes out as, and the Joseph and the mother of him. Joseph and the father. Joseph, the question of the fatherhood, the paternity question. Is Joseph the father of Jesus? The, the Greek rendering simply ignores the question and simply says, in the, in the earliest copies, simply says the father and the mother. Over a period of time, people, as they would read that, would realize, well, wait a minute now, Joseph really isn't the father. And so what they started doing was as someone would read it and they would see the father and the mother, they would go in there and they would write in the margin, Yosef, Joseph. 
Later on, some copyist who's going along copying the text sees that little Joseph out in the margin and wonders, did somebody make a mistake there? And so they sw and then he realizes, well, but it says father, but Joseph isn't the father of Jesus. That's God. So, oh, it should say Joseph. So not knowing Greek very well, this copyist takes out pater and puts in Yosef, and you get ha Yosef, the Joseph. And then another copyist sees it, realizes, oh, there shouldn't be a definite article there. Let's leave the ha out. And so they take the definite article out, and now you simply have, and Joseph and the mother. The Living Bible takes out mother and says Mary and Joseph and Mary. <laughs> and that's reflective of a more conservative Protestant approach that wants to deny that Mary is the mother of God. <clears throat> the Theotokos, or the, ma, the, the God bearer. Okay. Huh? She's the vessel. The ve yeah, she's the vessel, the carrier, but not, not necessarily the mother. They want to avoid that if they can in many cases. But that wasn't a problem for the Catholic Church in its history, uh, so that you don't see that in the textual exemplars. Okay, let me, let me reiterate what happened. The original reading was Kai ein ha pater, autus kai e mater, and the child's father and mother. All right. And someone saw that and got really uncomfortable and put, well, that's Joseph, so I put Joseph in the margin. A later copyist comes along, sees that, swaps out pater for Joseph, and you get this weird thing that we have in several manuscripts which reads, and the Joseph and the mother of him. And then a later copyist sees that, realizes you need to get rid of that definite article, and throws it away. And so most copies that we have then from that point on simply say Joseph and the mother. And it happens for a theological reason, to protect the virgin birth, to protect the divine paternalship of Jesus, and, and get rid of any possible suggestion that Joseph was the biological dad. It's a theological reason. It's how the text can drift over time. It's one example of what I was talking about when I said text drift over a period of time becomes more and more of a problem the further you get away from the autographs, which is why it's more important to go earlier. Thank you for bringing the King James. It was perfect. That's a, and that's an example of one of the reasons why it's good to have it on occasion. Yeah, yes. This is a Some time ago, maybe a year or two ago, I was watching Antique Roadshow, mm -hmm. and a guy came in with a, a, a copy of the original Washington Post the day after Lincoln was shot, uh -huh. and the day after Booth was found, and the guy gave him a dollar value of the yeah. appraiser, and then he said, but the great that's not the greatest value of these papers. The greatest value is the fact that's the clearest, most accurate story you'll ever read. <laughs> yeah, because it's been changed ever since by interpreters and spinners and historians and everything else. I never forget that. <laughs> That's a good illustration of what we just talked about. Earlier, fewer copy generations from the autograph is better. It's not always best, but it's usually better. You have less opportunities for things like this to drift in. All right. That was just kind of a freebie. It, it, because we had such a wonderful example of a textual variant, 
that exist between the King James and your other translations. Yeah, this I, is I, New King James. New King James, same issue. Same, same issue. The source manuscripts are the same behind it. A little bit, just a little bit better, a few more of them. But the majority reading is, uh, and Joseph and the mother of him. All right. All right. Let's keep going. We're not done. So they've gone into the temple. Simeon has seen the baby. Has, has given his prophecy about this baby. And now we have something else, another prophet. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. Just as Simeon was famous for a very long time after his death for having been such an important person, highly respected <coughs> in Jerusalem at the time, so also Anna, the prophetess, was highly respected and highly deeply revered and remembered long after her death. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. Wow. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. She sounds like widows we've got in the church today. Who, who husband dies, and for 25, 30 more years, they, they remain widows and are constantly involved at church. Very similar. At that moment, she came. This would be like Mary Means coming in, all right? At that, uh, she, uh, actually, Mary Means is older than Anna. <laughs> um, at that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So she also, after Simeon said his bit and made his prophecy, she also comes in and recognizes this child for who he is and what he is and makes a statement that has echoed down to Luke's day. Now notice, they don't actually say, quote her here. The Simeon gets the quote not Anna. Isn't that interesting? It just simply says, it summarizes what she said. And began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And right there you have the most difficult conflict with the Gospel of Matthew. Because the Gospel of Matthew has them leaving Bethlehem because, because of the threat of, of persecution and murder at the hands of Herod the Great, a warning that was given to them by the wise guys, and they head to Egypt. But don't they head home through Egypt? It doesn't say they just go to Egypt. Egypt is south and west. I know, but they could go out of their way to go home. It would be like going to go home to Dallas from Houston. It would be like going to Matamoros or Cabo San Lucas. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, they want them drinks. <laughs> um, it's... it's um, yeah, some people have said, well, couldn't they have gone home by way of Egypt? Well, it really isn't. I mean, I know it's way out of the way. It's, it's, it's extremely out of the way. 
Um, again, it's a different story. Matthew tells a completely different story here than Luke does. Luke does not know anything about. In fact, had Luke known of an escape to Egypt, it's likely he would have said something about it because it brings Jesus into the Gentile world even earlier as an infant. But in Matthew, they do return to Nazareth. Now, in Matthew, they then return to Nazareth. But do they return directly to Nazareth? Or do no. they return there by intent? It's, it doesn't say that. It says that. After, after an angel came to, the, to Joseph in a dream, they returned. Yeah, down in Egypt. Uh, and when... Um, when Her- verse 19. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly... This is in Matthew chapter 2, verse right. 19. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up and took the child and his mother, and they returned to the land of, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he will be called a Nazarene. So far from living in Nazareth, heading south to Bethlehem to go for the taxation and giving birth to the child there, and then returning after the mother's recovered and after they've done all the religious duties they're supposed to do after the circumcision and the purification rites and all. Far from that, Matthew makes it sound like they're going to, to Nazareth to live because they don't dare go back to the south because Archelaus is ruling. Or could this be, a Naz- he says, a town called Nazareth, so it would be called a Nazarene. Could it be like there's lots of Dallases? <laughs> Dallas, Georgia, Dallas, uh, Springfield. Possibly, <laughs> I, I don't know. It seems rather fascinating that they both get the baby born in Bethlehem. They both have his place of being raised, Nazareth. But Luke is implicit that, or explicit actually, that Nazareth is where Mary is from and Joseph is from. They're temporary sojourners in, Beth- in Bethlehem, and then they return home to Nazareth. Whereas Matthew doesn't seem to indicate that they had anything to do with Nazareth to begin with, and only go there because it's not safe to return to Judea probably to Bethlehem. Interesting. And Matthew indicates that Jesus is living in a house when the wise guys show up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Possibly as much as two years after the birth. Right. Which is not a temporary sojourn and certainly not certainly not what you have happen in Luke where they're heading home after, you know, eight, nine weeks. Craig, how are we to deal with the accuracy of prophecy when the event being reported is history. Okay, now repeat the question. How do we deal with the accuracy of prophecy when the event being reported is history? In other words, how like do the book of Daniel. Right, right. It, it's easy to get it right when it's history. When it's history. Well, 
what at is, least one version of history. What is true? What is prophecy? I want to ask y'all a question. Those and this is this is a, this is appropriate given that we've had a prophecy from Simeon here mm -hmm. about Jesus. Now we're hearing this prophecy, the song of Simeon, and then what he says in the paragraph after it, in eighty five or thereabouts AD, long after Jesus is dead and raised and all of the events that are prophesied about have happened. Alright? But what is prophecy? That's your question. What is pro but my question in response is, good Jewish action, though. You ask a question, I ask a question back. Mm -hmm. uh, well, <laughs> what it, it, is could be, it could be, in this case, uh, a reporting of history for the advantage of telling a story in a way we'd like it to be. Okay. A prophecy is a prediction of the future, and, and in my mind, it's different from a prediction because it's seems to be associated with some religious okay uh, that's the that is the colloquial understanding of what a prophecy is a telling of the future for religious purpose what you described is actually closer to what most of the prophecies in the Old Testament were mm -hmm. a prophecy is first and foremost a religious message told to interpret current or near current events to place an interpretation on them a we'll use the political term spin on them a specific way so that people will do a certain thing if you look at Isaiah if you look at Jeremiah if you look at Hosea if you look at Amos if you look at in a TV column yeah Pretty much. If you look at the Old Testament prophets, the major and the minor prophets, all of their prophecies, initially at least, had to do with events that either were happening then or were within the very near future. Two, three years. All right? For the most part. Um, and so in some ways it's like political commentary. And in many cases it absolutely was political commentary. Prophet comes to the king and says, you screwed up. You shouldn't have shown him your, your warehouse of, of your wealth. And now they're going to come and take you too. Uh, there, there are lots of examples of that in, in, in the Hebrew Bible. Um, then people, later, looking at those prophecies, see, okay, the events and circumstances surrounding those events, that prophecy, are very similar to the events and circumstances that we're in today. So the, the advice that the prophet had then is probably good advice today. And so you get multiple fulfillments of prophecy over a longer period of time. All right. Now what we have here is a backward casting prophetic affirmation or proclamation. Because when I said the principal purpose of prophecy is to give a religious message, that is exactly what a sermon is. The prophetic office of ministry is the preaching office, the proclamation office of the word. And so any prophecy that is truly a biblical prophecy isn't something of, you know, 3,214 years from now, this and that and the other is going to happen. No. It's because you've done this, this is almost, this is going to happen as a statement of faith. And if you look at what happened, like with Isaiah, it happened again and again and again, and he was right. Of course, he is telling this king that he'd screwed up big time, and he had. 
pretty, you know, it, it's 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 pretty uh, easy to get it <laughs> right, but it's that bad. It's like a counselor. Uh, it is a council, and it's identifying the consequences of your actions. Well, it's speaking truth to power about the repetition of yes. human action. Yes, precisely. <laughs> it's, folks, you just don't look back very far to notice it's happening again. Right. Now, what you have? Now, what you have with Simeon being a prophet is this plate being placed into his mouth, the song of Simeon is the after-the-fact interpretation of events. The paragraph that follows the song is much different than that. This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel could be understood in many ways. It's a very general statement. And if you were to understand the Messiah in the Jewish way of understanding the Messiah, as priest, prophet, and king, as the king, the, the, the new King David and the establishment of right worship and the establishment of righteousness in the land, that would apply. So if you're expecting a Messiah, you're going to say that. All right? And then the second part's also true. And to be a sign that will be opposed, of course the Messiah is going to be opposed. The bad people are going to oppose the Messiah. And the bad people at this time are the Romans. They're occupying forces and those people who are collaborating with them, the Jewish leadership, really. And look at verse 35. So that their inner thoughts, the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. Well, that, that's also a general statement. The Messiah is supposed to establish the kingdom of David, overthrowing the occupation forces of the Roman Empire. The Messiah is supposed to establish right worship again in the temple, overthrowing the perversions of the temple leadership who have been collaborating with the Romans. And the Messiah is supposed to establish righteousness in the land, which comes to this last statement, so that the inner thought that so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. That establishes righteousness. And look at that last statement. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Well, of course. The Messiah, even though the Messiah is going the Jews understand the Messiah or believe the Messiah is going to be victorious. It doesn't come without pain. Even, even for a victorious Messiah who doesn't get killed, crucified, and dead, it comes, it comes with some pain. So you could see in verses 34 and 35 something that a prophet would say about someone who's believed to be the Messiah, and it's going to be true, period, regardless, no matter how you articulate the events. True for what we know happened to Jesus. True for what they wanted to happen, but didn't. Well, that thought just hit me that if he's using sources mm -hmm. at a later date, yes, at which time they saw all of his miracles and, and really recognized him as being a Messiah, then they're going back and putting together a story. Putting together point to point to point. Yeah. That's why to, that to happened. Justify That's it. why this yeah. happened this way. Yeah. And yeah, they look back, they cast it back, and then they cast the explanation of it even further back, which is what they've done in the Song of Simeon. In a way that, in the context, is very difficult to understand. The Jews didn't believe in opening this, their faith up to Gentiles. Gentiles were stinky people. They didn't belong. In fact, the Messiah was supposed to get rid of them to a large extent not become a light to them, 
So you see how the Lucan approach and the target of the Gentile Christians has placed into the voice of Simeon something that they understand and see in Jesus as an interpretive spin or layer on top of verses 34 and 35, which seem to be far more like what you would hear from a Jewish prophet at the time. Well, maybe the, one of the reasons that the Jews didn't accept him was because they expected the Messiah to exalt only the Jews. Ding, 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 ding. He gets the prize. The, you get the cupid doll. That is <laughs> exactly right. They were looking for a military, religious, kingly Messiah. Three different kinds of Messiah. But they were expecting one who would overthrow the Roman occupation, overthrow the Gentile perversions of their society, and establish Judea as they were expecting. And that's not what they got in Jesus. They got a Messiah who dies. How did, did uh, the Maccabees miss Messiah assignment? What? Messianic. Oh, oh, I mean, Maccabees. they did it. <laughs> yeah, Why Maccabees the most certainly did. They <laughs> Judas just, Maccabeus could be... Protestants just don't know or care. Judas Maccabeus could very well have been a Messiah. Absolutely. He's certainly a Messiah character. Absolutely. Messianic expectation at that time was in its proto-infancy stages. It had yet to evolve. All right. It had well, not really sure, developed yet. He sure yet. was a good candidate that missed his chance. <laughs> had had messianic expectation evolved earlier, he would have been declared a messiah. Sure. Now, messiah, Mashiach in Hebrew means anointed one. He is an anointed one, but there is there are anointed ones, Mashiach, and then there's the, and then there's the, the messiah. Well, and, 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 was it was it Cyrus the messiah? It, yes, he was anointed one of God, sure. uh, an anointed one, absolutely. But, but not of the home team. But the, yeah, no, he wasn't of the home team. But but the point is, is that there are anointed ones of God throughout the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> well, he wasn't. But you're right. He's not. But then it was after it was after the intertestamental period. Well, during it, it was after Judas Maccabeus established the kingdom, following Antiochus Epiphanes and all that nightmares mess. Great story. Protestants should read it. Um, after those events, that messianic expectation started to evolve, and a special kind of anointed one was expected, and that really grew up after, well, after the Romans took over, mm -hmm. after the Roman occupation, it really took on a life of its own. Good question. Let's finish this chapter so that we can start up with three, because we're done. They're now in Nazareth. Now. We're, we're going to swing forward in time. Verse 41. Now every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. By the way, you know, we often say that Jesus grew up the son of a poor carpenter. If you were yeah. a poor carpenter, you're not going to be doing that. You might go on rare occasion to Jerusalem. You'd save up for years for it. But every year? If he was a carpenter living in Galilee, in Galilee living in Nazareth, he was probably a... Um, um, part of the military industrial complex providing uh, armaments and and implements for the Roman occupation. Think about it. Mm -hmm. Who would be the biggest purchaser of of wooden implements? The Roman occupation. The people with money and power. 
Very similar question can be asked of Paul. Paul was a tent maker. Who would be the biggest user of tents? The Roman army. The army. Uh, another thing, those tents, they didn't just make tents. They were, all, they were the same materials used to make sails. Paul would have made tents for the army and he would have made sails for the navy. He was also a military contractor. Wow. <laughs> now, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. Now, he's 12 years old. What does that mean? What has happened to him in the Jewish context at 12? He's an adult. He's an adult. He's had his bar mitzvah. Mm -hmm. He's an adult. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. This description is not so much a Jewish description as it is a Gentile description. He's 12 years old, therefore he's of accountability. He's an adult who should be beginning his religious training. And yet they call him a boy? Hmm. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple. Isn't it true you always find something the last place you look for it, both literally and figuratively speaking? It's not only the last place you look, it's the last place you were going to look. They should have gone to the temple first. That's what he says. When they, when they did not find, uh, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. One of the principal methods for training young rabbis was to have them gather around the old rabbis. The old rabbis would ask questions, the young would respond and then ask questions, and then the old rabbis would reply and then ask questions. So it was a continual give and take of question, response, question, response, question, response, back and forth. And you could judge a candidate's spiritual growth and intellectual growth by not only their answers but also their questions. All right, And that's what we see happening here. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him they were astonished. And his mother said to him, child, this is not how you would speak to a Jewish boy of 12. This is that Gentilism creeping in, huh? I was going to say mothers do. <laughs> well, but, but not in the Jewish context. But, but Gentile mothers would. That's this virgin says son. Son. Okay, a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Child, why are you treating, treating us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. He said to them, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Kind of a smart aleck answer. Mm -hmm. huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but how do you slap the Son of God? Carefully. <laughs> Very carefully. Very carefully. <laughs> but, but, carefully. But he knew he was pledged to the church. Pledged to God, absolutely. Firstborn son was oh. pledged to the Lord, and he must have known from birth he was. And okay. So it would be natural for him to... I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He maybe had... He, he was fascinated by all this stuff, and he knew firstborn is ought to be one of the things he would be doing, would be learning the faith. Even if he was going to follow in Joseph's footsteps and become a carpenter, he would still learn the Hebrew Bible and, and go to synagogue 
and sit and read on occasion and preach because that's what you did in their society. Rabbis didn't just serve, didn't they? They didn't. They didn't have appointments and receive salaries from it. Generally speaking, they they worked full time jobs as well as interpreting the scripture. If he read, why didn't he write? What do you mean? Why didn't he write stuff that we would have today? Well, and if he wrote, why didn't someone keep it? Was it not important? How do you know he read? He told us he read. Why didn't he write? If he wrote, because why didn't anyone keep it? Because his ministry wasn't a written one. It was a preached Obviously, one. Obviously, but <laughs> he had the ability, and oh my goodness, Mohammed, uh, he didn't... He didn't he write. Seventh centuries letter. He, he dictated it. Mm -hmm. Jesus didn't dictate. And we have these mm -hmm. different stories yeah. of what he said. Mm -hmm. wonder why he didn't write. Good question. Ask him when you see him. I'm just fascinated by the... It's a good it, question. If he wrote, why was, why was it not important to it keep... It wasn't necessarily part of the Jewish practice that a rabbi would write like that. We do have what rabbis who wrote... Hebrew scriptures if it's not written well, there <laughs> by are, those people? There are examples of rabbis who wrote. There are scholars who wrote commentaries. But there's the Targums. Commentary there are the commentaries and all. They did that kind of stuff. Yes, they didn't do it until much later in their lives usually. Mm -hmm. At least that's the, and especially an itinerant preacher like he became. I think that's probably the answer to your question. Was he functionally literate in his society? Absolutely. He could read. He reads in the synagogue. Yeah. Where does it say that? In, well, in the Gospels themselves, we will read where he says he goes in, he take, the scroll is given to him, and he reads from the scroll up to a certain point, and then he rolls it up and says, at this point in time, this prophecy is fulfilled in your presence. I mean, there are examples of him reading. We have a few of them. So we can assume literacy. And it's just an oddity and that basic, if he wrote, why it wasn't kept. And basic literacy relative to the scripture was not as uncommon amongst Jewish males. Of the ancient world societies, it tended to be one of the ones that was more literate than others. Mm -hmm. All right. For that reason because it was important in their religious practices, especially in the synagogue context. Good question. Here we see the very beginning of the process of him learning, where you would sit with your Jewish rabbis, they would ask you questions, you would answer, you would ask them questions, they would answer, and so on, and so on, and so on. And his reply, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Is, is a beautiful reflection of the fact that he understood himself to be about this kind of thing. Good question. Well articulated. Yeah, he would know that. And, and they should have realized it too. But they did not understand what he said to them. Huh. Then he went down with them and, and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. She does that a lot. She ponders things, she treasures them. That happens on several occasions here in Luke's Gospel. Mothers do a lot of that. Do, do you all? We oh, do. Yes. <laughs> That's why we have those they, stories it, to tell. Oh, they have ponder practice. <laughs> yeah. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor, which is a very classic phrase, which means he grew. And that ends the infancy stories that are unique to Luke. And next week, we'll pick it up with material that <coughs> starts pulling from Mark 
about the baptism. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Commerce, Texas, and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2015 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at First United Methodist Church, 1709 Highway 24, Commerce, Texas, 75428. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.